You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Welcome. Good morning, Father Paul. How are you today, sir? Morning, Father. Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. Today's an exciting topic. We're going to talk about denial of cultural superiority. I want to say it twice, Father Paul, because I find it emotionally satisfying to enunciate today's topic. Denial <laughs> of cultural superiority. This is an important topic for your argument and your discussion of Scripture and the rise of Scripture, but like so much of what you talk about, Father, because Scripture is practical and deals in wisdom, it has implications always for our contemporary setting. So many people today still suffer because of the problem of this sense of cultural superiority that affluent nations have. So welcome, Father Paul. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you very much. Well, this is highly criticized in Scripture. The hit is on both sides, on Israel and also on the nations. Right from the beginning, we hear that they are all in one pot in chapter 10 of Genesis. You have the three sons of Noah. But let's go into more specifics from Scripture itself. Let me begin with Solomon. He is presented as being the wise person to whom the people came from all over the place. And yet we notice that wisdom is something universal, as I stressed in my volume three of my intro of the Old Testament. It's the accumulation of knowledge from all over the place. And I said in this book that when you say Chinese wisdom, it's not that the wisdom is Chinese, but it comes through stories and proverbs from China. But wisdom is wisdom and folly is folly. Now, Solomon was also known as the builder of the temple, but then he had to use the help of Hiram, the Canaanian from Tyre, to build his temple. So that's the irony always in the Bible. There is a low blow against the one who is powerful or knowledgeable. Now, let me move directly to Israel, because the Israelites and then later the Jews thought that they were superior. And then the Christians took this from them because they thought if they were elect that they are the superior. But notice how you have systematic belittling of the Israelites by presenting them, not just belittling, by presenting them as originating from the nations which they tend to belittle themselves. Let's go for Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Interesting that early on in this text, Ur is said to be of the Chaldeans, under whom Israel was completely belittled by being exiled under the boot of the Chaldeans and almost destroyed. Then we have this text in Deuteronomy where the confession of an Israelite had to be, a wandering Aramean was my father. Wandering, as I explain in the book, does not mean to wander around. It means unto extinction. And the Aramean kingdom 
was very far away from Judah and Israel, way in the north in the area of Hara. But then in a text of Ezekiel, we have my father or your father is an Amorite and your mother is a Hittite, mentioned twice in Ezekiel chapter 16. Here again, Amorite is way into the north and Hittite is even more in Turkey. And then in that same chapter, the third sister of Jerusalem and Samaria is Sodom, a city that was condemned by God. And Jerusalem is presented as worse than Samaria and worse than Sodom. So through this approach, which is very ingenious, everybody is put into a corner. Left, right, north, south, east, west, Israel, nations, everybody. And that is purposeful. The second part is interesting because it goes like this. A wandering Aramean was my father and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there few in number. And we all know that Israel could have been extinct in Egypt were it not for God's intervention. And this story of the exile, if I may put it this way, is preceded by an exile of the forefather, Abram, with his wife, Sarai who almost became extinct. Scholars refer to this as the ancestress in danger, in peril. Imagine if your grandmother would have died before begetting. It means that you, the speaker, could not have been. It's an extremely low blow against you, that you are really on extremely thin ice. And right from the beginning, chapter 12 of Genesis. So we have always in scripture this specter. You are in the palm of the Most High, but remember the Most High is a judge. He can crush you with that hand where you are standing and he can hold you. It is just up to him. Let me go back to Ezekiel, where we hear about the grandfather being a Amorite and then the grandmother being a Hittite. The beginning of the verse says, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. And Canaan is very interesting. It is the earth of the promise that early on was under the curse when Noah cursed Canaan. So when you are in Ezekiel, which is a late book, the third book of the latter prophets. You hear number one of your connection with all those nations that are around you, and at the same time that you are in bad shape. Another example is Jacob, who is Israel, the actual father of the biblical Israel. Again, we hear that his connections were with Haran, with the Amorites, way north in the Syrian wilderness. This is the area where his grandfather stopped on the way from Ur coming into Palestine. So all in all, we have this repeated hit at everything that is lofty, whether from within Israel or coming from the nations. And here I cannot not refer to Isaiah chapter 2, where both nations and Israel, Jacob, are invited to go to the holy mountain where God teaches them his instruction, his Torah. The rest of the chapter is a direct attack against everything that is lofty in very harsh words. 
Three times we are told how God comes to destroy the human beings that have to hide and so on. It says the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day in verse 17 of chapter 2. Now in this regard, I would like to point out which is extremely unacceptable by all human beings because of our platonic mind that if you mention terror it's something different than glory the glory of god is always luminous and beneficent whereas his terror is the opposite but i would like to point out that we hear three times and i'm going to give you the verses 10 19 and 21 let's hear it Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty. This is known among scholars as synonymic parallelism. In other words, the terror is the glory. The glory is the terror. We have the same thing in 19. Men shall enter the caves from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty. And again, in 21 to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the lord and from the glory of his majesty and here we have the explanation when he rises to terrify the earth and this is clear for someone who knows hebrew the language of scripture because glory in hebrew is kapod which means weight weightiness heaviness which goes back to the fact that God is by definition a judge. The deity is the judge. So it brings glorious terror, if I may say. And everybody else, on the other hand, is going to be belittled, put down in comparison with God. And I would like to end with that to make sure that my hearers understand that the belittling is not internal, external, it may happen or may not happen, and so on and so forth. And it is never in comparison with other people. It is always in comparison with the greatness of God. And let me end with this note. Very early on, we have a God that creates the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And then he addresses Adam as being dust from dust. Dust is a very interesting word because we have the word ground in Hebrew, Adama, from which the human being Adam came. But we have another word, Afar, which is the particles of dust that form that ground. So it is as though you are brought down to the extreme. You're not ground to ground. You are completely scattered on the ground as nothing and this brings us to the breath the nafish and so on that the human being is just a passing breath able able and so that is an aspect against this tendency especially in orthodoxy where you train yourself into humility how can you train yourself to be humble i tease my students by saying that we teach the people to grow in humility just listen to yourself how can you grow in humility i mean it's a contradiction in terms you should become smaller like john the baptist how do you do that just remember that you are always in the presence of god in comparison with him.
you, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, are so tiny. And the Muslims are very interesting in this regard that, you know, the first thing you do when you enter the mosque, and the Orthodox monks do that also, is to prostrate yourself completely. And you are already belittled. I mean, if I take a picture of you prostrating yourself completely on your face against the ground in a mosque, it's very clear. And you look around, God is nowhere because there is no statue. So he's heavy, unlike the other gods, through their statues. No, it is through his judgment, his glory, his terror, seated on a throne that you cannot see. But he is seated and he judges all the gods in chapter 80. This is how I view the issue. It's right there, if I may say, at the heart of Scripture. This is the major crimson thread in the mind of the authors throughout the Bible. Just put it on a tape and listen to it, and you will hear it time and again. One is belittled by the God of Scripture and not by the outsiders, because that same God in Isaiah says, you don't have to be terrified by Pharaoh and his chariots, because they are flesh, just humans, but I am spirit. A lot of times people talk about the chosenness, and there's, of course, a lot of ideas out there about what the chosenness of Israel means. And oftentimes people will use this phrase from Isaiah, a light to the nations, so that Israel is this chosen nation that then is going to be the example for the nations, and the nations are going to look up to Israel. And then this is used in all kinds of ideological ways among different groups of many different religions. Could you help better how to understand this phrase, light to the nations? nations in light of the chosenness that people talk about with Israel? In your statement, you took a shortcut. You assume, as if you do, mainly among the Jews, that that servant referred to by Isaiah is Israel, the people. Well, I don't think it is so, because simply that servant of the Lord has a mission to Israel and also to the nations. So that put under question the assumption that it is the Jews that are the light to the nations. It is the messenger of God. Just to give you a parallel example, because this is from Isaiah. In Jeremiah, we have the same thing. Jeremiah is set by God to be a prophet, obviously, to Judea, Jerusalem, but also over nations and kingdoms. And in Ezekiel, we don't need to prove it because Ezekiel was active in exile. So he was addressing Israel under the boot of the Chaldeans. So that's the way to look at it. It is not we. But I know that the tendency is there more so among the Christians because they thought they took over. They are the new Israel, which is the light to everyone. This is not how Simeon looks at it. It is Jesus who is not we. Jesus as messenger of God, which brings us back to my presentation today, that it is only God who has the kabod, glory only to him. Let's go back to this we when we say we, which I attack in my book. We say we the Christians. And then in your mind, you include in this we all the fathers of the church and the saints and the martyrs that were before you. But this is silly because they are dead. So technically, when you say we, 
you are practically saying I and that is not allowed because God at a specific time has only one chosen one messenger and we are so indirectly by listening to this message so another thing that's always been odd to me is discussions about the oracles against the nations that we have for example in ezekiel we have many chapters against egypt and against assyria and all the judgment that's going against babylon or going against egypt and how they're going to end up but one thing that always struck me about that is that it's written in hebrew so obviously it's not directed at Egyptians, it's directed at speakers of Hebrew, yes. so the original authors. So then how do these oracles against the nations, so-called, function for an audience who is not Egyptian and is not Babylonian? Well, it functions because it tells you that God has a far-reaching arm. He can get to any nation that is part of the nations of chapter 10. That he is not only the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, God has two facets. He's God and the Lord. The Lord is usually connected with the Torah. In other words, specifically, he gave it to Israel. But he is primarily God. In Genesis chapter 1, he's God. He becomes the Lord God only in chapter 2. But let me go back to your point to show you how very often we slip. You slipped yourself when you referred to Ezekiel and his oracles against the nations, and you included Babylon. Well, the tricky thing in Ezekiel is that there is no oracle against Babylon, which is a slap in the face of the hearer. In other words, you heard Isaiah, you heard about Babylon, you heard Jeremiah, and you heard about Babylon. And then you get into Ezekiel, where he is under the boot of the Babylonians, and obviously you are expecting that there would be even a longer oracle against Babylon. And lo and behold, it is not mentioned. Why ask the author? <laughs> it doesn't matter. What matters is that each book is functional. In the previous book, Jeremiah said to his people, settle in Babylon and get married and plant vineyards because you're going to stay there. Let me go back to this we and I. When we say the Jews went to Babylon and stayed there 70 years and came back. I mean, in those times, people died at 60. So how could you have gone there at 20 years of age and come back? You don't have a continuity of the same people experiencing everything as we do in mysticism and in our prayers in the church. Those who left Egypt did not set foot in Canaan. Those who went to Babylon died, and Ezekiel was speaking to their children. So at no point the individual, the we, you, the speaker, is here and there and there at the same time. You are just at one point functional in the story. So all this continuity, the nation, Rome, the Roman Empire that stretches over the centuries, and we are still here since the third century, and so on. It just doesn't make sense, at least from the scriptural perspective. The only one who spans all the centuries is God. Even David had to get married and have children, Psalm 45 to secure his kingship. It's interesting because the stakes are much 
higher and the difficulties of the story are much more forceful when you're disallowed the platonic luxury of imagining that there's this we of which you're a part. Because if you go down to Babylon and die, you died in Babylon. And it's interesting because it brings clarity to what you've said about the cross in the New Testament and the ways in which we anesthetize the cross to get a kind of realized eschatology. So we talk about the resurrection, but nobody actually talks about the fact that there is an actual death to be contended with, and you have to face that cross. You can't just use it as a metaphor and suddenly be part of this glorified we. I think it's a really important point, and I'm always amazed at how clever people are and how persistent they are at trying to get around the teeth of the narrative. Anyways, just an observation, Father Paul. Yeah, yeah, and what you said reflects chapter 6 of Romans that people try to discard. They always say, you know, that in baptism we die and we are raised. No, only Jesus died and he was raised. As for us, should we continue on the path of righteousness, <laughs> then it will happen in the future. This chapter 6 of Romans, I mean, scripture is powerful in any chapter, but this chapter should be read by each of us every day because towards the end we have this extremely unacceptable statement uh, that we are enslaved to God by God. So the glory is to him and to his chosen one who is Jesus Christ. There is no one in the Bible that was raised unto power because God was not raised because God does not die. And we don't have anyone in the Bible, including Lazarus, that was raised or the young girl and did not die. That's why I keep saying to the people, never say that Jesus was raised unto life. He was raised unto power to be seated at the right hand and he will come again to judge you in the name of God. So all these, I used to refer to them as nuances. In other words, we have to be careful. But slowly on, and I'm discovering that there are real differences. So we have to train ourselves to listen to Scripture and use its wordings and not our conclusion, to put it this way, against myself, that I should not teach my commentary on Galatians and Romans. <laughs> I should teach Romans. And this is extremely hard, very hard, but we have to really push for that. It is his word only that remains. And let's finish with this nice quotation of Isaiah, where I always tease my students to show them that I can read the text for them and they will have no problem with it, although it doesn't say what the text is saying. For instance, when I read in chapter 40, let's say I read it this way. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but our God will stand forever. You will nod, and if you are a Pentecostal, you will applaud and so on. But that's not what the text is saying. <laughs> the text is saying the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, people react, what's the difference? That's not the point. The point is that the text says whatever it says. And when you get to know Isaiah, 40 is the beginning, the first chapter of the book of Consolation which ends up in chapter 55. 
and it ends you know just to show that literature is literature for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and return not thither but water the earth and so on so shall my word be that goes for my mouth and so on and so forth so we have a whole book addressed to the people in exile which is on hope that that word will be implemented thank you very much father paul i want to stress and i think we had a nugget today where we had some insight into father paul's exegesis of romans i really want to stress the importance of scholarship and the fact that everyone can do scholarship wherever they are all scholarship is is trying to pay attention to data information and trying to make sure that when you go to make a statement or a claim you can connect it to the information that's available. Many people, when they talk about Romans, just talk. Many people are surprised that someone like Father Paul, who's an Old Testament scholar, would have something to say about Romans. But when you understand the science of literature and that what you are doing is looking at all of the facts available before you speak, you begin to see that there's a difference between just talking, what scripture calls vain talk, and making an effort to conform your speech to the content of scripture. It's a very important principle. And so today we had some insight into how Father Paul is not just giving his opinion about the function of the cross in the New Testament, but it's integrated with the data that we find in the Pentateuch and the prophets and the wisdom writings. So once again, Father Paul, very thankful that we can zoom in on your work on this podcast to really expose people who might not otherwise have this opportunity to see what the lab work of Scripture is really all about. So appreciate your time and your effort, Father. I thank you. Have a great week. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.